You're just in time. I believe I've isolated the algorithm from making friends. You know how cheap sitcoms will have a laugh track instead of a live audience? I do indeed. Hear him out. If he's really onto something, we could open a booth at Comic-Con, make a fortune. I feel like they got to do the same thing for the Olympics, like have, you know, some sort of applause track um, so it's not just silent. They're absolutely going to need to do that. Now I'm imagining like a nightmare situation where uh, somebody's in, in control of the tracks and like accidentally hits a laugh track when, when a gymnast comes crashing down. <laughs> oh. Ooh, or we hear the bone break because there's nothing to cover it up. Oh, God. <laughs> the games will go on, but the fans won't be there. Organizers will hold Olympic events in Tokyo without spectators, a move they say was a heavy decision. Hey there, Pulse Jack listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel continuing our special series on the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I am talking with Ryan Heath, author of our Global Translations newsletter and host of the Global Translations podcast about how the heck you host the Olympics in the middle of a pandemic. Here's our conversation. So, Ryan, the Olympics are happening in Tokyo, Japan next week. And even though things are feeling basically normal here in a lot of ways, Tokyo is under a state of emergency. How is this going to work? It's going to be extremely complicated. Now, everything is relative is the first point for everyone to understand. So there are fewer cases in Tokyo, in, in Japan, than in most major cities and most states in the United States and a lot of other countries as well. Hmm. But what's really different about the Tokyo Olympics is that most Japanese remain unvaccinated. It's only around one in five who've received a vaccine dose. Hmm. And Tokyo is inviting people in from 200 different countries. So it's not just what happens in Tokyo. It's what happens when those people fan back out to their home countries, which often have even lower vaccination rates than Japan. So there are just myriad ways for this to go wrong. But also there's just a huge amount of passion and investment in the world wanting these Olympics to succeed. So they're going ahead regardless. Let me see if I have this straight. The state of emergency in Tokyo isn't necessarily because like coronavirus is spreading out of control there, but it's because they're going to be having the Olympics and they're sort of concerned about what that could mean for Tokyo and the rest of the world? In relative terms, coronavirus is now much more prevalent than it has been at other times during the pandemic in Tokyo. So there is a reason for uh, the local government to have put in increased restrictions. But the other big fear was that it would get absolutely rampant by the time of the Olympics. So they've just stayed in mm. this steady state of emergency lockdown in order to avoid it getting worse. Gotcha. So things have been bad, but not terrible. And the lockdown was designed to stop it getting out of control around the Olympics. Mm. Okay, so I want to talk about some of the logistics of this. I mean, you, you mentioned 
athletes coming in from countries across the world. Uh, I guess the first question I have is, are, are athletes going to be vaccinated? Are they required to be vaccinated? No. So most athletes will end up being vaccinated, but there's no requirement. Mm -hmm. The only requirement is that they have a couple of negative tests before their arrival in Japan. Once they're on the ground in Japan, they'll have to undergo daily COVID testing when the Olympics proper kicks off. So there's lots of ways to catch a problem, but we've seen the Delta variant break through even the most extreme quarantine systems like in my home country, Australia. So there's nothing to say it can't happen again. There's a strong incentive for people who've experienced symptoms to perhaps consider getting some fake results and trying to evade the system that way. We see that in terms of performance enhancing drugs all the time. There's no reason why we might not end up in the same situation around COVID when these lifetime dreams are on the line. If you do come up positive, you have to be in quarantine. So yeah, I spoke to Anita de France, who is the first vice president of the International Olympic Committee. And she's also really the, the head honcho when it comes to sports governance in America. She's a real Olympic icon. And she just said directly to me that COVID tests are the new doping test. It's like missing a dope test. Uh, you're considered uh, uh, guilty until proven innocent. That's so the second you're not there or the second you have a positive test, you're immediately going into isolation and you risk not being able to compete. Hmm. Is there going to be some sort of quarantine bubble for athletes? Like, how, how does all of that work? Are they going to be, like, confined to a single hotel? Are they going to be able to see each other? Um, I don't know. What does what the day-to-day -day there look like? Yeah, I think we would not describe it as a biosecure bubble in the way that we might have seen with different American sports leagues, with different mm -hmm. football, soccer tournaments in other countries around the world. Uh, but there is a clear intention that there's not a lot of mixing going on, which is why you're going to have the reduced entourages of officials. You're not going to have as many volunteers. Uh, you are not going to have the wild parties in the public squares that we all associate with previous Olympic Games. So I don't think there's any way to completely contain uh, a mixing of the, the many tens of thousands of people who are still coming for the Olympics with the local population, but it's going to be limited as much as possible. And then what most of the Olympic committees are doing is flying their athletes out within 24 or 48 hours of their events being over. So this whole idea that it becomes a wild party at the closing ceremony, that's not really going to happen this time around. And then there's no spectators. Yeah, <laughs> that's the big one. <laughs> so I honestly think that this is as much about optics and political management domestically in Japan as it is about the real evidence-based health risks. Hmm. Now, the thing to remember here is that it is likely to be the post-Olympic period that could cause um, the biggest problems when uh, you start to see the variant enter into other parts of the Japanese population or you see athletes and officials return home to their home countries and infect uh, unvaccinated populations. We know it's literally possible to have sporting events with large crowds uh, when you follow protocols and when there are a lot of vaccinated people. Uh, but the Japanese government has decided that it's just not worth the risk. Uh, it wants to pull off the games. It wants to be able to sort of deliver that boost to national pride. But 
the Japanese people overall, around three quarters of them, are very skeptical that this is going to work. And so they're just not willing to have the risk of having the spectators there. I want to go back to Japan's coronavirus situation, because you mentioned that at least case wise, it's not that bad. But then that what one in five people are vaccinated there. Um that sounds kind of surprising to me, given, you know, that we have pretty high vaccination rates here in the U.S. Why is Japan behind so much? I think Japan is in the same boat as a few other countries that were doing well at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, in the sense that they have fairly strong hygiene protocols in general in Japan. Uh, they were early on the case in, in, in uh, you know, putting in some restrictions, and they just never really had the huge surges that other countries uh, like the US and the UK had. They were also attempting to develop their own vaccines. And as we know with vaccines, most of them just don't work out or they take a very long time mm -hmm. to develop. So when you place some bets on domestic research and it doesn't pay off, but you haven't arranged all of the contracts uh, with uh, foreign companies and you don't have that many COVID cases today, it doesn't feel like such a big drama. Uh -huh. Now that we're in the moment and there are hundreds of new cases each day, it does feel like more of a drama for the Japanese population. At the same time, it's not half a million people dying. It's not tens of thousands of new cases a day like we have seen in the United States. Hmm. But the fear is that when you bring in a bunch of people from across the world, they could potentially spread to Japanese citizens or Japanese citizens could spread to them and then they could bring it back to their countries. Yes, and it's really about the Delta variant, which has a higher viral load than the original virus and the previous variants, uh, which means that it is more transmissible. So when you have an unvaccinated population, it can really tear through that group of people in a way that it's just not going to in a vaccinated population, and which is different to a year ago when we were first dealing with all these lockdowns. So given all of that, whose decision was it to go forward with the games and, and why did they decide ultimately to do it? At the end of the day, it is the local Tokyo government and the Japanese national government that make the decision. Uh, and the IOC strongly pressured them to find a way to make it happen. But at the end of the day, they had to do a lot of compromising as well. It's why we ended up with the one year postponement from the original 2020 date. Mm -hmm. And it's why the IOC essentially backs up the Japanese government whenever a question is put to them. Uh, you know, the IOC would love this to be different, and they're going to try and absorb some of these lessons and, and take back some more control of future Olympics, I would say. But at the end of the day, they aren't a government. And this is a public health emergency. So they have to be led by the elected officials in Japan. The Olympics are usually an economic boost for a country or city, right? Like, mm -hmm. will that at all be the case for Tokyo, given that, you know, there aren't going to be thousands of thousands of spectators traveling, there are going to be spectators at the event? Like, does this help Tokyo or Japan at the end of the day? Or is this just kind of a burden? It's a huge open question, to be honest. Uh, the bill already for the games is well north of $20 billion. Wow. So that's a lot of money. But when we think about the trillions that have been spent on stimulus to ward off the economic effects of COVID, I mean, that's a drop in the ocean now, isn't it? So, mm -hmm. you know, we all think about numbers differently as a result of, of the havoc that COVID has wreaked. Uh, Japan has also spent years investing in this process, and it would be a huge dent to national pride immediately after Korea pulled off a successful Winter Olympics and just ahead of Beijing hosting the Winter Olympics in 2022. 
for Japan not to be able to pull this off uh, and to have its neighbors pull their games off, that would be a very difficult situation for any Japanese politician to, to justify. So in some senses, it's more about the damage that would be done if the games were called off than whether Tokyo can officially turn a profit or whether it's going to lead to a tourism boost. Those things might happen, but I think there are other factors at play. How do you think this is going to turn out? I mean, you've talked to some of the folks coordinating this. You're tracking the global health situation every day. Like, do you feel like there are significant risks here and we could see something bad happen? I think there are real risks. There are just so many variables. And at the end of the day, it's also going to be hard to directly link any of the fallout straight back to the Olympics. Mm. You know, it might be possible with excellent contact tracing and and genome work, but it's not going to always be obvious that that Tokyo was the cause of any problem that emerges. Uh, at the same time, I was in Sydney for the 2000 Olympics, London for the 2012 Olympics, and you see at the beginning that there can be skepticism or there's not, you know, a unity around the fact that this event is happening in a particular city. And then the world kind of coalesces and the host city does coalesce around the idea that this is a very magical moment. So whatever those health risks are, I think as we build through the games into that second week, it will start to feel like something excellent and that the world can do things again. So I think you're really going to have this sort of parallel universe where the risks will be more to the forefront of debate and you'll hear more from those voices at the beginning of the games and then towards the end of the games we're going to start to to feel the excellence and hear the inspiring stories and i think that's going to to dominate the narrative in the end what sort of effect do you think this could have like beyond the olympics i mean given there are obviously like a bunch of other huge events that will probably be happening soon after like there's the world cup there's global summits could this be something sort of that like people take cues from and how to pull this off in sort of our current covid or post covid world and how to like safely do it at least if it works out well yes and i think the lessons aren't just for sports the next really big global event after the olympics would be the UN General Assembly that takes place in New York every September, or it did until last year. So to gather more than 100 world leaders and all of their entourages, uh, that can be a very risky situation as well. So if things go wrong at the Olympics, you're going to see problems and concerns around whether that UN General Assembly can take place in person in September. But if the Olympics can pull it off, then it's proof that almost anything can be pulled off and people will start to get more ambitious about the ways that they conduct those big in-person events, both in politics as in sport. All right, that is it for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Ryan Heath for joining me. To stay up on his latest reporting, sign up for the Global Translations newsletter at politico.com slash newsletters, and check out the Global Translations podcast if you haven't yet. Also, subscribe to this podcast, Pulse Check, if you haven't yet. And if you think we are gold medal worthy, Maybe leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Pulse Check's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>